Chapter Thirteen, Section Two of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Thirteen, Section Two, Conditions of Individual Emancipation. It is then essential to recognize that the individual american will never obtain a sufficiently complete chance of self-expression until the american nation has earnestly undertaken and measurably achieved the realization of its collective purpose as we shall see presently the cure for this individual sterility lies partly with the individual himself or rather with the man who proposes to become an individual and under any plan of economic or social organization the man who proposes to become an individual is a condition of national as well as individual improvement it is none the less true that any success in the achievement of the national purpose will contribute positively to the liberation of the individual both by diminishing his temptations improving his opportunities and by developing him in an invigorating rather than an enervating moral and intellectual atmosphere it is the economic individualism of our existing national system which inflicts the most serious damage on american individuality and american individual achievement in politics and science and the arts will remain partially impoverished as long as our fellow countrymen neglect or refuse systematically to regulate the distribution of wealth in the national interest i am aware of course that the prevailing american conviction is absolutely contradictory of the foregoing assertion americans have always associated individual freedom with the unlimited popular enjoyment of all available economic opportunities yet it would be far more true to say that the popular enjoyment of practically unrestricted economic opportunities is precisely the condition which makes for individual bondage neither does the bondage which such a system fastens upon the individual exist only in the case of those individuals who are victimized by the pressure of unlimited economic competition such victims exist of course in large numbers and they will come to exist in still larger number hereafter but hitherto at least the characteristic vice of the american system has not been the bondage imposed upon its victims much more insidious has been the bondage imposed upon the conquerors and their camp followers a man's individuality is as much compromised by success under the conditions imposed by such a system as it is by failure his actual occupation may tend to make his individuality real and fruitful but the quality of the work is determined by a merely acquisitive motive and the man himself thereby usually debarred from obtaining any edifying personal independence or any peculiar personal distinction different as american businessmen are one from another in temperament circumstances and habits they have a way of becoming fundamentally very much alike their individualities are forced into a common mould because the ultimate measure of the value of their work is the same and is nothing but its results in cash consider for a moment what individuality and individual independence really mean a genuine individual must at least possess some special quality which distinguishes him from other people which unifies the successive phases and the various aspects of his own life and which results in personal moral freedom in what way and to what extent does the existing economic system contribute to the creation of such genuine individuals at its best it asks every man who engages in a business occupation that he make as much money as he can and the only conditions it imposes on this pursuit of money 
are those contained in the law of the land and a certain conventional moral code. The pursuit of money is to arouse a man to individual activity, and law and custom determine the conditions to which the activity must conform. The man does not become an individual merely by obeying the written and unwritten laws. He becomes an individual because the desire to make money releases his energy and intensifies his personal initiative. The kind of individuals created by such an economic system are not distinguished one from another by any special purpose. They are distinguished by the energy and success whereby the common purpose of making money is accompanied and followed. Some men show more enterprise and ingenuity in devising ways of making money than others, or they show more vigor and zeal in taking advantage of the ordinary methods. These men are the kind of individuals which the existing economic system tends to encourage, and critics of the existing system are denounced because of the disastrous effect upon individual initiative which would result from restricting individual economic freedom. But why should a man become an individual because he does what everybody else does, only with more energy and success? The individuality so acquired is merely that of one particle in a mass of similar particles. Some particles are bigger than others and livelier, but from a sufficient distance they all look alike, and in substance and meaning they all are alike. Their individual activity and history do not make them less alike. It merely makes them bigger or smaller, livelier or more inert. Their distinction from their fellows is quantitative, the unity of their various phases a matter of repetition, their independence wholly comparative. Such men are associated with their fellows in the pursuit of a common purpose, and they are divided from their fellows by the energy and success with which that purpose is pursued. On the other hand, a condition favorable to genuine individuality would be one in which men were divided from one another by special purposes and reunited in so far as these individual purposes were excellently and successfully achieved. The truth is that individuality cannot be dissociated from the pursuit of a disinterested object. It is a moral and intellectual quality, and it must be realized by moral and intellectual means. A man achieves individual distinction, not by the enterprise and vigor with which he accumulates money, but by the zeal and the skill with which he pursues an active interest, an interest usually, but not necessarily, connected with his means of livelihood. The purpose to which he is devoted, such, for instance, as that of painting or of running a railroad, is not exclusive in the sense of being unique, but it becomes exclusive for the individual who adopts it because of the single-minded and disinterested manner in which it is pursued. A man makes the purpose exclusive for himself, by the spirit and method in which the work is done, and just in proportion as the work is thoroughly well done, a man's individuality begins to take substance and form. His individual quality does not depend merely on the display of superior enterprise and energy, although, of course, he may and should be as enterprising and as energetic as he can. It depends upon the actual excellence of the work in every respect, an excellence which can best be achieved by the absorbing and exclusive pursuit of that alone. A man's individuality is projected into his work. He does not stop when he has earned enough money, and he does not cease his improvements when they cease to bring him an immediate return. He is identified with his job, and by means of that identification his individuality becomes constructive. His achievement, 
just because of its excellence, has an inevitable and an unequivocal social value. The quality of a man's work reunites him with his fellows. He may have been in appearance just as selfish as a man who spends most of his time in making money, but if his work has been thoroughly well done, he will, if making himself an individual, have made an essential contribution to national fulfillment. Of course, a great deal of very excellent work is accomplished under the existing economic system, and by means of such work many a man becomes more or less of an individual. But in so far as such is the case, it is the work which individualizes and not the unrestricted competitive pursuit of money. In so far as the economic motive prevails, individuality is not developed, it is stifled. The man whose motive is that of money-making will not make the work any more excellent than is demanded by the largest possible returns, and frequently the largest possible returns are to be obtained by indifferent work or by work which has absolutely no social value. The ordinary mercenary purpose always compels a man to stop at a certain point and consider something else than the excellence of his achievement. It does not make the individual independent, except in so far as independence is merely a matter of cash in the bank, and for every individual on whom it bestows excessive pecuniary independence, there are many more who are, by that very circumstance, denied any sort of liberation. Even pecuniary independence is usually purchased at the price of moral and intellectual bondage. Such genuine individuality as can be detected in the existing social system is achieved not because of the prevailing money-making motive, but in spite thereof. The ordinary answer to such criticisms is that while the existing system may have many faults, it certainly has proved an efficient means of releasing individual energy, whereas the exercise of a positive national responsibility for the wholesome distribution of wealth would tend to deprive the individual of any sufficient initiative. The claim is that the money-making motive is the only one which will really arouse the great majority of men, and to weaken it would be to rob the whole economic system of its momentum. Just what validity this claim may have cannot, with our present experience, be definitely settled. That to deprive individuals suddenly of the opportunities they have so long enjoyed would be disastrous may be fully admitted. It may also be admitted that any immediate and drastic attempt to substitute for the present system a national regulation of the distribution of wealth or a national responsibility for the management even of monopolies or semi-monopolies would break down and would do little to promote either individual or social welfare. But to conclude from any such admissions, that a systematic policy of promoting individual and national amelioration should be abandoned, is wholly unnecessary. That the existing system has certain practical advantages, and is a fair expression of the average moral standards of today is not only its chief merit, but also its chief and inexcusable defect. What a democratic nation must do is not to accept human nature as it is, but to move in the direction of its improvement. The question it must answer is, how can it contribute to the increase of American individuality? The defender of the existing system must be able to show either, one, that it does contribute to the increase of American individuality, or that, two, whatever its limitations, the substitution of some better system is impossible. Of course, a great many defenders of the existing system will unequivocally declare that it does contribute effectually to the increase of individuality, and it is this defense which is most dangerous, 
because it is due not to any candid consideration of the facts, but to unreasoning popular prejudice and personal self-justification. The existing system contributes to the increase of individuality only in case individuality is deprived of all serious moral and intellectual meaning. In order to sustain their assertion they must define individuality, not as a living ideal, but as the psychological condition produced by any individual action. In the light of such a definition, every action performed by an individual would contribute to individuality, and, conversely, every action performed by the state, which conceivably could be left to individuals, would diminish individuality. Such a conception derives from the early 19th century principles of an essential opposition between the state and the individual. Such a conception derives from the early 19th century principles of an essential opposition between the state and the individual, and it is a deduction from the common conception of democracy as nothing but a finished political organization in which the popular will prevails. As applied in the traditional American system, this conception of individuality has resulted in the differentiation of an abundance of raw individual material, but the raw material has been systematically encouraged to persist only on condition that it remained undeveloped. Properly speaking, it has not encouraged individualism at all. Individuality is necessarily based on genuine discrimination. It has encouraged particularism. While the particles have been roused into activity, they all remain dominated by substantially the same forces of attraction and repulsion. But in order that one of the particles may fulfill the promise of a really separate existence, he must pursue some special interest of his own. In that way he begins to realize his individuality, and in realizing his individuality he is coming to occupy a special niche in the national structure. A national structure which encourages individuality as opposed to mere particularity is one which creates innumerable special niches, adapted to all degrees and kinds of individual development. The individual becomes a nation in miniature, but devoted to the loyal realization of a purpose peculiar to himself. The nation becomes an enlarged individual whose special purpose is that of human amelioration, and in whose life every individual should find some particular but essential function. It surely cannot be seriously claimed that the improvement of the existing economic organization, for the sake of contributing to the increase of such genuine individuals, is impossible. If genuine individuality depends upon the pursuit of an exclusive interest, promoted most certainly and completely by a disinterested motive, it must be encouraged by enabling men so far as possible to work from disinterested motives. Doubtless this is a difficult, but it is not an impossible task. It cannot be completely achieved until the whole basis of economic competition is changed. At present, men compete chiefly for the purpose of securing the most money to spend or to accumulate. They must in the end compete chiefly for the purpose of excelling in the quality of their work, that of other men engaged in a similar occupation. And there are assuredly certain ways in which the state can diminish the undesirable competition and encourage the desirable competition. The several economic reforms suggested in the preceding chapter would, so far as they could be successfully introduced, promote more disinterested economic work. These reforms would not, of course, entirely do away with the influence of selfish acquisitive motives in the economic field, because such motives would remain powerful as long as private property continues to have a public economic function. 
but they would at least diminish the number of cases in which the influence of the mercenary motive made against rather than for excellence of work the system which most encourages mere cupidity is one which affords too many opportunities for making easy money and our american system has of course been peculiarly prolific of such opportunities as long as individuals are allowed to accumulate money from mines urban real estate municipal franchises or semi-monopolies of any kind just to that extent will the economic system of the country be poisoned and its general efficiency impaired men will inevitably seek to make money in the easiest possible way and as long as such easy ways exist fewer individuals will accept cordially the necessity of earning their living by the sheer excellence of achievement on the other hand in case such opportunities of making money without earning it can be eliminated there will be a much closer correspondence than there is at present between the excellence of the work and the reward it would bring such a correspondence would of course be far from exact in all petty kinds of business innumerable opportunities would still exist of earning more money either by disregarding the quality of the work or sometimes by actually lowering it but at any rate it would be work which would earn money and not speculation or assiduous repose in an easy chair in the same way just in so far as industry became organized under national control for the public benefit there would be a much closer correspondence between the quality of the work and the amount of the reward in a well-managed corporation a man is promoted because he does good work and has shown himself capable of assuming larger responsibilities and exercising more power his promotion brings with it a larger salary and the chance of obtaining a larger salary doubtless has much to do with the excellence of the work but at all events a man is not rewarded for doing bad work or for doing no work at all the successful employee of a corporation has not become disinterested in his motives presumably he will not do any more work than will contribute to his personal achievement and if the standard of achievement in his office is at all relaxed he will not be kept up to the mark by an exclusive and disinterested devotion to the work itself still under such conditions a man might well become better than his own motives whenever the work itself was really interesting he might become absorbed in it by the very momentum of his habitual occupation and this would be particularly the case provided his work assumed a technical character in that case he would have to live up to the standard not merely of an office but of a trade a profession a craft an art or a science and if those technical standards were properly exacting he would be kept up to the level of his best work by a motive which had almost become disinterested he could not fall below the standard even though he derived no personal profit from striving to live up to it because the traditions and the honor of his craft would not let him the proposed economic policy of reform in so far as it were successful would also tend to stimulate labor to more efficiency and to diminish its grievances the state would be lending assistance to the effort of the workingman to raise his standard of living and to restrict the demoralizing effect of competition among laborers who cannot afford to make a stand on behalf of their own interest it should consequently increase the amount of economic independence enjoyed by the average laborer diminish his class consciousness by doing away with his class grievances and intensify his importance to himself as an individual it would in every way help to make the individual workingman more of an individual 
his class interest would be promoted by the nation in so far as such promotion was possible and could be adjusted to a general policy of national economic construction his individual interest would be left to his own charge but he would have much more favorable opportunities of redeeming the charge by the excellence of his individual work than he has under the existing system his condition would doubtless still remain in certain respects unsatisfactory for the purpose of a democratic nation must remain unfulfilled just in so far as the national organization of labor does not enable all men to compete on approximately equal terms for all careers but a substantial step would be made towards its improvement and the road marked perhaps for still further advance again however must the reader be warned that the important thing is the constructive purpose and not the means proposed for its realization whenever the attempt at its realization is made it is probable that other and unforeseen measures will be found necessary and even if a specific policy proposed were successfully tried this would constitute merely an advance towards the ultimate end the ultimate end is the complete emancipation of the individual and that result depends upon his complete disinterestedness he must become interested exclusively in the excellence of his work and he can never become disinterestedly interested in his work as long as heavy responsibilities and high achievements are supposed to be rewarded by increased pay the effort equitably to adjust compensation to earnings is ultimately not only impossible but undesirable because it necessarily would foul the whole economic organization so far as its efficiency depended on a generous rivalry among individuals the only way in which work can be made entirely disinterested is to adjust its compensation to the needs of the normal and wholesome human life any substantial progress towards the attainment of complete individual disinterestedness is far beyond the reach of contemporary collective effort but such disinterestedness should be clearly recognized as the economic condition both of the highest fulfillment which democracy can bestow upon the individual and of a thoroughly wholesome democratic organization says mr john j chapman in his chapter on democracy in his causes and consequences quote, it is thought that the peculiar merit of democracy lies in this that it gives every man a chance to pursue his own ends the reverse is true the merit lies in the assumption imposed upon every man that he shall serve his fellow men the concentration of every man on his own interests has been the danger and not the safety of democracy for democracy contemplates that every man shall think first of the state and next of himself democracy assumes perfection in human nature end quote. but men will always continue chiefly to pursue their own private ends as long as those ends are recognized by the official national ideal as worthy of perpetuation and encouragement if it be true that democracy is based upon the assumption that every man shall serve his fellow men the organization of democracy should be gradually adapted to that assumption the majority of men cannot be made disinterested for life by exhortation by religious services by any expenditure of subsidized words or even by a grave and manifest public need they can be made permanently unselfish only by being helped to become disinterested in their individual purposes and how can they be disinterested except in a few little spots as long as their daily occupation consists of money-seeking and spending in conformity with a few written and unwritten rules 
in the complete democracy a man must in some way be made to serve the nation in the very act of contributing to his own individual fulfillment not until his personal action is dictated by disinterested motives can there be any such harmony between private and public interests to ask an individual citizen continually to sacrifice his recognized private interest to the welfare of his countrymen is to make an impossible demand and yet just as such a continual sacrifice is apparently required of an individual in a democratic state the only entirely satisfactory solution of the difficulty is offered by the systematic authoritative transformation of the private interest of the individual into a disinterested devotion to a special object american public opinion has not yet begun to understand the relation between the process of national education by means of a patient attempt to realize the national purpose and the corresponding process of individual emancipation and growth it still believes that democracy is a happy device for evading collective responsibilities by passing them on to the individual and as long as this belief continues to prevail the first necessity of american educational advance is the arousing of the american intellectual conscience behind the tradition of national irresponsibility is the still deeper tradition of intellectual insincerity in political matters americans are almost as much afraid of consistent and radical political thinking as are the english and with nothing like as much justification jefferson offered them a seductive example of triumphant intellectual dishonesty and of the sacrifice of theory of practice whenever such a sacrifice was convenient jefferson's example has been warmly approved by many subsequent intellectual leaders before emerson and after mere consistency has been stigmatized as the preoccupation of petty minds and our american superiority to the necessity of making ideas square with practice or one idea with another has been considered as the exhibition of remarkable political common sense the light-headed frenchmen really believed in their ideas and fell thereby into a shocking abyss of anarchy and fratricidal bloodshed whereas we have avoided any similar fate by preaching a noble national theory and then practicing it just as far as it suited our interests or was not too costly in time and money no doubt we also have had our domestic difficulties and were obliged to shed a good deal of american blood because we resolutely refused to believe that human servitude was not entirely compatible with the loftiest type of democracy but then the civil war might have been avoided if the abolitionists had not erroneously insisted on being consistent the way to escape similar trouble in the future is to go on preaching ideality and to leave its realization wholly to the individual we can then be uplifted by the words while the resulting deeds cannot do us as individuals any harm we can continue to celebrate our noble national theory and preserve our perfect democratic system until the end of time without making any of the individual sacrifices or taking any of the collective risks inseparable from a systematic attempt to make our words good the foregoing state of mind is the great obstacle to the american national advance and its exposure and uprooting is the primary need of american education in agitating against the traditional disregard of our full national responsibility a critic will do well to dispense with the caution proper to the consideration of specific practical problems a radical theory does not demand in the interest of consistency an equally radical action it only demands a sincere attempt to push the application of the theory as far as conditions will permit 
and the employment of means sufficient probably to accomplish the immediate purpose but in the endeavor to establish and popularize his theory a radical critic cannot afford any similar concessions his own opinions can become established only by the displacement of the traditional opinions and the way to displace a traditional error is not to be compromising and conciliatory but to be as uncompromising and as irritating as one's abilities and one's vision of the truth will permit the critic in his capacity as agitator is living in a state of war with his opponents and the ethics of warfare are not the ethics of statesmanship public opinion can be reconciled to a constructive national program only by the agitation of what is from the traditional standpoint a body of revolutionary ideas in vigorously agitating such a body of revolutionary ideas the critic would be doing more than performing a desirable public service he would be vindicating his own individual intellectual interest the integrity and energy of american intellectual life has been impaired for generations by the tradition of national irresponsibility such irresponsibility necessarily implies a sacrifice of individual intellectual and moral interests to individual and popular economic interests it could not persist except by virtue of intellectual and moral conformity the american intellectual habit has on the whole been just about as vigorous and independent as that of the domestic animals the freedom of opinion of which we boast has consisted for the most part in uttering acceptable commonplaces with as much defiant conviction as if we were uttering the most daring and sublimest heresies in making this parade of the uniform of intellectual independence the american is not consciously insincere he is prepared to do battle for his convictions but his really fundamental convictions he shares with everybody else his differences with his fellow countrymen are those of interest and detail when he breaks into a vehement proclamation of his faith he is much like a bull who has broken out of his stall and goes snorting around the barnyard tossing everybody within reach of his horns a bull so employed might well consider that he was offering the world a fine display of aggressive individuality whereas he had in truth been behaving after the manner of all bulls from the dawn of domestication no doubt he is quite capable of being a dangerous customer in case he can reach anybody with his horns but on the other hand how meekly can he be led back into the stall by the simple device of attaching a ring to his nose his individuality always has a tender spot situated in much the same neighborhood as his personal economic interests if this tender spot is merely irritated it will make him rage but when seized with a firm grip he loses all his defiance and becomes as aggressive an individual as a good milch cow the american intellectual interest demands consequently a different sort of assertion from the american economic or political interest economically and politically the need is for constructive regulation implying the imposition of certain fruitful limitations upon traditional individual freedom but the national intellectual development demands above all individual emancipation american intelligence has still to issue its declaration of independence it has still to proclaim that in a democratic system the intelligence has a discipline an interest and a will of its own and that this special discipline and interest call for a new conception both of individual and of national development for the time being the freedom which americans need is the freedom of thought 
the energy they need is the energy of thought. The moral unity they need cannot be obtained without intensity and integrity of thought. End of chapter 13, section 2